Good evening. Can you hear me in the back? Is this working? No, barely. How about that? Uh, I'm Francine Prose, and I'd like to welcome you on behalf of Penn. Uh, a few weeks ago, on a Sunday evening, uh, I was sitting around the house, and we were kind of getting dinner together. And, and basically, basically, I was just killing time till The Sopranos came on. And so I was, I was kind of cruising around the channels, channel surfing, and I went by 60 Minutes. And I had that sort of feeling that you get sometime that it has something to do with you or something you know about or something you have some recognition. And which these days is usually a bad feeling. But in this case, I thought it was something good. And in fact, it was something very good. It was a story essentially about Penn. Many of you probably know it. It was about the Penn's Paul Newman Award which this year went to Barbara Lane. Uh, the story is that there was a, a class in the Connecticut State Prison taught by Wally Lamb. The state of Connecticut tried to keep the women in the class, the prisoners, from uh, getting the proceeds from their book. And when Penn announced that, that Barbara was going to win this award, suddenly Penn shone a light on the whole situation, as, as Penn does, and the entire situation changed. When I saw it on 60 Minutes, I felt extremely proud. I felt a kind of familial feeling, as if someone in my family had done something quite extraordinary and was being honored in this way. And in fact, Penn is our family now. Penn has never, it seemed to me, been so important, so necessary. As you all know, our freedom of expression, our freedom to write, has never been in such danger in this country. And Penn has really stepped up to the plate, speaking out against the Patriot Act and adding our voices to the growing voices um, fighting for our liberties. Tonight, we're here for another purpose, for Penn's other purpose besides making noise, the right kind of noises, and that is to celebrate literature, to celebrate writing. Again, literature has never seemed more precious. Tonight, we're going to honor writers at the beginning of their career, near the end, young and old, writers in different genres. It's a great pleasure to be here. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Benjamin Taylor. I chair the awards committee at Penn. And um, uh, I wish to thank, first of all, uh, Francine Prose and the other newly uh, uh, elected officers of Penn, and also to say a very particular thanks to the immediate past president, Joel Canero, who, who may be out there somewhere. Jolie, are you there somewhere? Thank you very much, Joel Canero. We all appreciate your services. Uh, and a word about the extraordinary jurors uh, who've given so generously of their time. Um, uh, the formulaic word here is selflessly. Well, these aren't selfless people. To the contrary, these are writers. Uh, nonetheless, they have given all but selflessly of their time. And uh, one in particular told me that uh, after the umpteenth box of books came uh, uh, through her uh, apartment building uh, mailroom, uh, uh, she was sternly asked if she ha was opening a shop in her apartment. Uh, uh, some of these people have read literally a hundred books or more 
in order to settle on one plus two distinguished finalists. And um, uh, I cannot say thank you warmly enough to all of them for their service. Tonight's first award, uh, first group of prizes, uh, honors the art of literary translation. Uh, appropriately, uh, uh, our first award given this evening is Penn's oldest, established in 1963, the $3,000 Penn Book of the Month Club Translation Prize, uh, which was also the first prize given by writers in the United States to recognize excellence in literary translation. Uh, the first uh, uh, award will be presented this evening uh, by Charlotte Mandel, one of this year's judges. Miss um, Mandel. Two thousand three was an excellent year for literary translation. There were over 200 submissions for the Penn Translation Prize, and about 20 of them were really outstanding. My co-judges were Burton Pike and Peter Theroux. After many careful and surprisingly amiable discussions, we narrowed it down to these finalists. Hillel Halkin for his translation from the Hebrew of The Liberated Bride by A.B. Yehoshua, and Linda Coverdale for her translation from the French of Street of Lost Footsteps by the Haitian novelist Lionel Trio. If Linda Coverdale is here, uh, could you stand? I don't know if she's, okay. <laughs> the citations for these books can be found in your programs. The Penn Book of the Month Club Translation Prize goes to Margaret Sayers Payden for her translation from the Spanish of Sephirad by Antonio Munoz Molina. In Sephirad's interweaving narratives and changing registers, Payton's expert translation not only preserves each narrative as distinct, but makes the novel sound as if it had been breathed in English, a masterpiece of translation. The prize will be awarded by Brigitte Weeks, Senior Vice President and Editor-in-Chief of Bookspan, on behalf of the Book of the Month Club. Well, it's a, it's a great honor to be here, and um, I've been lucky enough, actually, to have been here before and presented this award, uh, always to amazing translators, so I feel grateful to be here today. And all I can say is, every time I think of good translation, it's like opening doors and, opening doors and windows, because otherwise I'd be shut on my little English island with no place to go. So thank you on behalf of the Book of the Month Club. And, and there is your award, and it's the most, the oldest award there is, so you thoroughly deserve it. Thank you. It was suggested that I write what I wanted to say so I wouldn't get lost, but I want you to know I'm going to read it even though most of my lines have already been stolen. Um, I am indebted to many people tonight, beginning with my grandparents going down through my children, my grandchildren, and my great-grandchildren. I want to thank the committee, 
who chose my translation for this great honor. Obviously, my gratitude goes to Antonio Munoz Molina, whose wonderful, powerful book, Sephirod, I was given the opportunity to translate. He is not here this evening, but his editor, Drenka Willen, is, and I thank her in his stead. In this moment of honoring translation, I would like to read my favorite translation definition, one written in 1611 by the authors of the King James Version of the Bible. Translation is it that openeth a window to let in light, that breaketh the shell that we may eat the kernel, that putteth aside the curtain that we may look into the most holy places, that removeth the cover of the well, that we may come to the water. Each of us who translates hope to achieve, so each of us hopes, shall I keep my grammar straight, to achieve some portion of such openings. So I want to thank the Book of the Month Club sponsors of this wonderful award and Penn for uh, the light they shed on our sometimes strange and wonderful craft. Uh, I thank them and I thank them for my own great good fortune. Thank you. The Penn Award for Poetry in Translation is a $3,000 award created to honor translators of poetry um, and to be judged by poet translators. Um, to present it this year is Forrest Gander. Hi. Um, Thanks to the Ur translator from the Spanish, Esther Allen, for inviting me to judge this. It was a real pleasure. The three finalists were Joshua Beckman, with the author, for his translation of Poker by Tomás Salomon, Jen Hofer, for her translation of Sin Puertas Visibles, an anthology of contemporary poetry by Mexican women, and Munir Akash and Carolyn Forche with Sanan Antun and Amira Elzain for their translation of Unfortunately, It Was Paradise, selected poems of Mahmoud Darwish. If any of them are, were able to make it and would stand now, show our appreciation. <clears throat> I know some are caught on a train. The winner of the <clears throat> Penn Award for Poetry and Translation is Peter Cole for his translation of Aaron Shabtai's Jacuz. Aaron Shabtai cultivates a particularizing language, not a language that loves information, but a language informed by love. In Jacuz, Peter Cole, who lives in Jerusalem, translates not only words bent on resting themselves from the service of habit, propaganda, and fear, but he translates also Aaron Shabtai's gift to see traditional differences as less consequent than affinities with respect to suffering, love, imagination, and the universal spiritual denominator of empathy. 
Cole's translation doubles the meaning of James Baldwin's insight that each of us is helplessly and forever, each of us helplessly and forever contains the other. Peter Cole. Thank you, Forrest. Thank you, Penn and the Awards Committee. Thank you, Esther Allen and the Translation Committee. Thank you, Barbara Epler and New Directions for having the courage to, to publish these poems. And above all, I thank Aaron Shabzai for having had the courage to write them. I believe deeply in the sympathy of serious translation, as Forrest suggested. Uh, maybe because I live in a part of the world where it's so sorely absent. I'd like to read one short poem from Jacques that's about that absence. Um, Shabtai himself has said that it's an admittedly, uh, admittedly it's a minor poem, but that if one day he were called to heaven and asked who he was and what he did, he would have this poem uh, represent him. It mentions two things that I think uh, you, you, I should say something about. It starts with Rafiach, which is the refugee camp in Gaza that's in the news again. And it repeats a chant that, believe it or not, is all too commonly heard at Israeli soccer games and featured in local graffiti. As we were marching. Two days ago in Rafiach, nine Arabs were killed. Yesterday, six were killed in Hebron, and today, just two. Last year, as we were marching from Schenken Street, a man on a motorcycle shouted toward us, death to the Arabs. At the corner of Labor, opposite the, opposite the Betzalel Market, next to Bronze Butcher Shop, and at the corner of Bugrashov, death to the Arabs. For a full year, this poem was lying on the sidewalk along King George Street, and today I lift it up and compose its final line, Life to the Arabs. Thank you. The Penn Laura Pell's Awards for Drama are a pair of awards created in 1998 with the Laura Pels Foundation to recognize American playwrights in two ways. The award to an American playwright in mid-career offers a $5,000 stipend, and the award to mark the distinguished body of work of a master American dramatist, a rare edition of a master work of dramatic literature. In both cases, Penn Laura Pels Foundation honorees are writers indisputably at the highest level of achievement. Uh, it's my pleasure this evening to introduce Richard Greenberg, who will present both this year's uh, Penn Laura Pels Awards. Lynn Nottage is one of the most gifted, artistically ambitious, and truly serious writers of her generation. When my co-judges, John Guerre and Tina Howe and I, began discussing her, it was with a feeling of unalloyed admiration and actually some relief. Um, for you know more specifics of the quality she possesses, I, I refer you to her citation. Um, but now I'm just very pleased to present the Laura Pell's Award for a Mid-Career Playwright to Lynn Nottage. Thank you. 
Um, thank you. I, I was very surprised to discover that I'm actually a, a playwright in mid-career because I feel like I'm just beginning. This Penn Award is particularly a sweet honor because it's given by playwrights that I've admired since I began seriously writing plays. So thank you, John Guare, who's not here, and Richard Greenberg and Tina Howe for inviting me to join your club. Thank you, Laura Pels, for your generous support of theater artists and allowing me to inaugurate your beautiful new theater with my play, Intimate Apparel. It's been seven years since my last play was produced in New York. We theater artists pursue our craft often with so little reward. Um, and it's really lovely to be recognized for hard work and perseverance. Finally, I want to thank my family and my great-grandmother, whose photograph inspired me to tell a story. It's been a really magnificent year for me, and thank you, Penn. In the admittedly brief history of American playwrights, there are few who can compare, I think, whose careers can compare to that of uh, Lanford Wilson. At least um, offhand, I can think of very few who have worked as long and as at high a level, at as high a level, and um, without real interruption. Um, the the award for a master playwright this year is this alarmingly heavy book. Um, that I'm going to hoist up here. Um, <laughs> no one can drink. Um, all right, it is uh, a first edition from 1701 of John Dryden's dramatic uh, works. And um, unfortunately, Lanford Wilson is indisposed and can't join us here today. So in his place to accept this, to carry this, is his longtime director and partner in Circle Repertory, Marshall Mason. I'm honored to uh, accept this award for Lanford. I'm sorry he can't be here today to uh, accept it personally, but truth be told, after the 56 productions we have created together, most people can't tell us apart anyway. When, he, uh, when I'm greeted by friends we haven't seen for a long while, I'm frequently here, hi, Lanford. And he is often hailed with a friendly, hey, Marshall. We've grown uh, accustomed to this Shakespearean confusion of identity, but it reached a climax one day about 10 years ago when, in a moment of frustration and distraction, our honored playwright looked me in the eye and said, now listen, Lanford. <laughs> and I said, oh my God, not you too. I spoke to him a couple of hours ago after he had returned from seeing uh, his doctor about his inconvenient upper respiratory problem, and he asked me to thank, thank dear Laura Pels for sponsoring this award and the members of the committee who have judged him worthy of this honor. It's marvelous to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award, but I know he traded in in a second for Lynn's Mid-Career Award. Not just for the money, you understand. <laughs> Some people think that awards are silly, vain and empty emblems of current popular trends. After all, Euripides never won a prize higher than second place. 
Other people thrive on the recognition. One thing is sure, an artist never tires of hearing genuine praise because he suffers through so much doubt. To illustrate this point, I'd like to read a passage from the play Lanford has frequently called his favorite, The Mound Builders. In this scene, a famous writer finds herself stranded on a remote dig with her archaeological ar archaeologist ar <laughs> brother, a recovering alcoholic. Delia coughs so much from her incessant smoking she rarely sleeps. In the middle of the night, she has in this encounter with the young archaeologist, Dan, who is assisting her brother. Why don't you straighten up like a man? Your posture is a disgrace to the species. Oh, for God's sake, put your shoulders down. You look like a capon. I'm not talking about your physical health. I'm talking about this howdy-doody, hail fellow, nice guy, innocent babe in the woods facade you splash over every... I'm a writer, not a chiropractor. You still think of yourself as a writer? I mean, I'm glad. Are you working? Are you, are you writing? You know, I knew August for two years before I knew you or his sister. We read you at school. Contemporary American Lit, Professor, can't remember. Read half your second book aloud. The second one was Spindrift. He was wild about it. Read everything aloud because he knew, A, we wouldn't read anything he assigned. And he had this thing that any really good book should be read aloud, B. Where was this? Columbia said you were the last defender of a woman's right to make a fool of herself. Oh, surely not the last. <laughs> Tell him I was drunk. When you wrote it? Does that make it bad? No, it makes it easier. No, it doesn't. Nothing makes it easier. <coughs> what? I said, nothing makes it easier once it starts becoming difficult. Half of it. Half of it should read very nicely. Half of it was dictated into a tape recorder because I couldn't find the typewriter keys. I liked it, the half you heard. I read it. I liked it a lot. Uh, I realized you couldn't care less about one way or the other about whether our, our... I had a little secretary come in from some agency and type it for me. Temporary help. She looked temporary. Very neat, sweet, meek. She typed eight hours a day for five days, never misspelling a word, stacked the manuscript on the desk, put on her neat, sweet, meek gloves while I wrote out a check, took her check sweetly, put on her coat meekly, and left by the front door neatly. And I took the manuscript, put it in a box, wrapped it in vinegar and brown paper, addressed it to my publisher who had been expecting it daily for over five months, threw it on the floor of the closet, and got drunk for three days. Wouldn't answer the phone. Because it was finished? Because I thought she hadn't liked it. <laughs> I want to thank you for letting Lanford know how much we like him. Thank you. Laura Pels has been an incomparably generous and wise presence. 
in, in uh, not just the American theater, but the European theater as well. She's with us today. I wonder if I may ask her to stand. Laura? No. <laughs> Penn Martha Albrand Award for First Nonfiction is presented this year by Beth Kephart. Please welcome her. On behalf of Thomas LaCroix and David Haydu, who's here this evening, I'm honored to announce the three books we chose to celebrate for this year's Penn Martha Albrand Award for First Nonfiction. Our finalists were Sherry Fink, who wrote the truly marvelous and hopefully enduring War Hospital, she's right over here tonight, and Earl Swift, whose Where They Lay is, like Sherry's book, the work of a truly committed writer and world citizen. You can read what we thought about those books in the citations, and we also hope you'll read the books. But the winner this year is Paul Eli, whose book, The Life You Save Might Be Your Own, resonated for days after we judges read it and surfaced time and again in our email notes to one another. We had been in search of a writer who was in possession of an original telling or provocative theme, a seeker who was willing to reflect on the unexpected question, a craftsperson who dared to write prose that could galvanize or persuade, and a storyteller who had the discipline and foresight to shape his tale into a compelling narrative. Paul, with this book, delivered. I was the privileged judge who got to call Paul to tell him he'd won, and I had what I would count as one of my most enjoyable half hours in literature during the conversation that ensued. Paul brought every considerable thing he knows about books to his own, and we congratulate him. Thank you, Beth. The four writers who figure into the book, The Life You Save May Be Your Own, got fewer prizes than you might think. Walker Percy, when, he, when his first novel, The Moviegoer, won the National Book Award, nobody would heard of him or his book. And when The Habit of Being was recognized by the National Book Critics Circle, Flannery O'Connor had been dead 15 years. But those four writers all believe that the real prize for the serious writer is the attentive reader who's willing to be changed through the encounter with the book. And as things turned out, they found attentive readers in one another. Myself, I'm lucky. I found many attentive readers, and not least those who took such care with my book in the press and now and the judging for this award. In addition to them, I'm grateful especially to my wife, Lenora Todaro, to Lydia Wills, to Jonathan Galassi and Carrie Goldstein of FSG, and to my parents, all of whom are here tonight, that whole group. To them and to everyone else at FSG, especially Robert Giroux and Roger Strauss, many thanks. This year's Penn Martha Albrand Award for the Art of the Memoir, uh, a prize of $1,000. Uh, 
uh, is presented by uh, Elizabeth Kendall. Um, I am honored, and so are my two fellow judges, Lily Tuck and Frederick Bush. We spent a lot of time reading a lot of memoirs, and when you open a memoir, you're also almost opening a person. Um, we have chosen two finalists, Mary Cimaroli for The Bootlegger's Other Daughter, about growing up in Texas poor, and Azar Nafisi for Reading Lolita in Tehran. Citations for both those wonderful books are in your programs, and so is the citation for the winning book, which is Jarhead by Anthony Swafford. I only want to say that if you've read Jarhead, I'm sure you've been thinking about it recently. Swafford was a Marine, a Jarhead in the first Gulf War. He was the deadliest kind of Marine, a sniper. And now he's a writer, a kind of a killer writer. And what he's done is shown, he's put us inside the culture of our military so we can feel the brutalization that goes down the chain of command to the guys and women at the bottom. I think you all better read this book. Tony, congratulations. Thanks, Elizabeth. Uh, good evening. I'd like to thank uh, the awards committee for recognizing Jarhead. Uh, it's a great honor to receive such an award uh, when there are other fine books that might also have been chosen. Thanks to my agent, Sloan Harris, a supporter of my work and a gruff taskmaster when I most need it. And uh, my great thanks to Susan Moldau and all of those at Scribner who had a hand in the publication of my book. I doubt that it's possible for a writer to receive any better treatment than I did. And I must especially thank my editor, Colin Harrison. He brings artistry and fierce intelligence to his work. And while he talked to me about Jarhead, he was not simply editing, but engaging me in a long conversation about this great mystery we call books. When I finished Jarhead, and I was rather raw and beaten, Colin told me that every book costs the writer that parts of the writer die with each book. And then the writer, in search of that sensation, starts another book. An evening such as this is some kind of payment for those deaths. Thank you very much. Penn's $5,000 award for the art of the essay, established in 1990, honors uh, the energy and originality uh, of the essay form. And to present the award is one of this year's judges, Anke Mühlstein. My co-judges, uh, Hilston Als and Vivian Gornick, read for a long time, but we arrived very quickly to our conclusions. And we chose two finalists, Floyd Sklut for In the Shadow of Memory 
and Alec Wilkinson for Mr. Apology. And I think Alec is here. Perhaps he will stand up. And the prize goes to Stuart Justman. I'm particularly pleased to present him this prize because when I called him to tell him who won, he didn't believe me. He nearly hung up. He thought I was a joker. But I managed to convince him, and here he is. It's true. <laughs> First, my apologies to Anka for going blank when she called to report that I had won this award. One, when writing, I always feel firmly connected to a platonic audience. To discover such a connection with a real one dazed me. At the University of Montana, I introduced students to works of literature, believing, as I do, that we think and write more strongly for the study of such works. But I believe the study of literature has a great additional benefit, that it teaches admiration for the work of another, humility in the presence of another, attentiveness, care, respect for evidence. And as I went through the medical experiences that are the subject, more or less, of my book, Seeds of Mortality, I came to see that these qualities have a kind of analog in medical practice that a good physician possesses the eye of a discerning reader. In the essays that together form Seeds of Mortality, I reflect on all that separates careful medical practice from the banner-waving and battle cries of the cancer world. Seeds of Mortality is dedicated to my wife and children, and I renew that dedication here. I wish to acknowledge my doctors and nurses, as well as the others, they know who they are, who saw me through. One special note, uh, by a fine coincidence, on the jacket of the book appears some words by a former recipient of the Penn Essay Award, Frederick Cruz. Of this man of intellect and wit, I will only say that he has long been one of my imaginary readers. Lastly, my profound gratitude goes to my publisher, who is also a fine editor, Ivan R.D., and to Penn itself. Thank you. The Penn Phyllis Naylor Working Writers Fellowship, an award of $5,000, uh, established by Penn member uh, uh, Phyllis Reynolds Naylor uh, is next uh, on our list. Uh, I'm happy to say that Phyllis Reynolds Naylor is with us. I wonder if I can ask you to stand. The award was developed to assist gifted writers of children's fiction at a crucial point in their careers. It helps make possible an extended period of time to complete a book-length work in progress and is presented to an author whose work is of high literary caliber. Uh, this year's award will be presented by Mark Aronson. <clears throat> My fellow judges, Carla Stevens, Amy Ehrlich, and I had a real immersion in what's going on right now in middle grade and young adult fiction, it was fascinating to see how much moral directness and how much literary experiment there is in a field that is generally not noticed by the surrounding literary community, although I was noticing two of our authors here, Russell and Francine, have both written books in this genre, and I'm very pleased that they joined us. 
Um, in amidst the many, many books, uh, manuscripts we read, one stood out for the originality of voice and freshness of wit, and it was Deborah Wiles' manuscript, and that's why we had to select it, and I'm very pleased to present you with this. Hello. Allow me to be personal for just a moment. There's so few times I really get to thank the people who I really want to thank. Four years ago, my first books were coming out to be published. A novel called Love, Ruby Lavender. It was a high old time. And all of a sudden, I became an instant single parent. And my parents died, and so much surrounded me that was just full of despair and death and trying to make a living and trying to make my ends meet so that I could finish a novel that was under contract coming behind Ruby to Harcourt. That novel still remains unfinished, and I couldn't get to it. I just couldn't get to it, and my editor, Liz Van Doren, said to me, put it aside then, put it aside write something else for me. What is it? What's in your heart? What can you write? And I sat down with my laptop computer in bed, <laughs> and I opened up a new file, and into it I typed, I come from a family with a lot of dead people. <laughs> and it's the first line of the novel that will be published next spring by Harcourt. And that novel just began to come. It just began to come. And yet I was working so hard at other jobs to try and make my ends meet, support my family. And this working writer fellowship that Phyllis Naylor has so wonderfully endowed is helping me to finish this novel. It's so wonderful. The other thanks go to Liz Van Dorn, my editor, who has encouraged me, supported me, sat down and waited on me, and inspired me, and told me, you can do it, you can do it. And to Harcourt Brace Children's Books, who have just waited and waited on me and been so good to support me through this time, this last four long years. It's been a privilege to work with Harcourt Books and to be able to tell my story and to write for children. Patricia McLaughlin, who also writes for children, says, what you know first stays with you. And I so truly believe that, which is what makes it such a wonderful privilege to write for children and to be able to do that, to take those things that you know first and to put them into story and to offer them up to the world. I'm so grateful to Penn for recognizing that we do need help and for coming through at a time that's so important. Thanks so much. The Penn-Robert Bingham Fellowships for Writers are three astoundingly generous fellowships uh, to recognize exceptionally talented fiction writers on the strength of a debut work, a first novel or collection of short stories published in 2002 or 2003. 
Each fellow receives a stipend of 35,000 per year for two consecutive years to help in the production of a second work of fiction and will engage in a project of public literary service that brings authors in their works to settings outside the literary mainstream, such as schools, adult educational programs, or literacy centers serving low-income communities. I particularly want to say how pleased we are that members of the Bingham family are with us this evening and to thank them, uh, uh, I particularly, with all my heart, for uh, uh, these extraordinary uh, awards. The judges for this year of uh, fellowships were Peter Cameron, Allegra Goodman, and Ann Patchett. Peter Cameron and Ann Patchett are with us to make the presentation. Hello. The Penn Robert Bingham Fellowships were established in the memory of Robert Bingham, who died in 1999 at what I have to say is the tender age of 33, to commemorate his love of literature and his contribution to literary fiction. He was also someone who during his young life wanted to help and encourage other young fiction writers, and tonight in his memory he has encouraged Jonathan Safran Foyer, Will Heinrich, and Monique Trong. And I'm here to present the award to Jonathan. Uh, everything that I have to say about everything is illuminated sounds like hackneyed jacket copy. This book is a stunning achievement and a dazzling tour de force. It is also important, both as a piece of literature and a moral view of the world. And I have to say, when I read it, it thrilled me. Jonathan. Hi. Uh, I've had an increasingly hard time being a member of groups recently, uh, not only because as I write more and more, independence feels more and more important to me, but because uh, so many groups are so misrepresenting me right now. Uh, and unfortunately, the groups that speak loudest on my behalf are the ones that are most grossly misrepresenting me. Um, when I open the paper in the morning, I want to holler back at the pictures, this is just not who I am, and this is not what I chose, uh, these things that are being done in my name. And I end up spending a lot of time and energy working myself up in, into a foam about the things that I don't choose. And that's a large part of why it feels so wonderful to be here tonight, uh, celebrating something that I do choose and choose again and again, uh, Penn's values uh, are not only mine, Penn not only represents me, the group actually guides me and is a kind of moral compass reminding me what I have to know about, uh, why I have to care about it, and how to care about it in an effective way. And it's for that reason that uh, I'm so honored to be given this fellowship, and also that I'm so excited to spend the next two years working under Penn's auspices to try to further its values, and also why I've decided to give the money back to Penn. Uh, I want to thank the Bigums, I don't, you're over here somewhere, for 
just your enormous generosity of spirit and also everybody who works at Penn for being a group that I can actually be deeply proud to be a member of. Thank you. It was um, an especial pleasure for me to judge the Robert Bingham Fellowship because uh, Rob Bingham was a student of mine about 10 years ago when he was in the MFA program at Columbia. And as a teacher of graduate students, I'm always frustrated when, when students come into the program directly from college and sort of have no life experience. And that was not at all a problem for Rob. The first day of class, I always have people go around and introduce themselves and, and sort of tell us where they've been. And I remember, I can distinctly remember this sort of hush falling, this very envious sort of hush falling over the room when Rob started telling us about what he had done and especially where he had been. Um, and um, it, it, it became apparent to me that, um, that he had lived a very full life. And I think if you read his two books, you'll see what I mean. There's so much of his life in those books and it's an astounding achievement. The um, second recipient of the Robert Bingham Fellowship is Monique Truong. And about her first novel, The Wondrous Book of Salt, my fellow judge Allegra Goodman wrote, piquant, elliptical, and sensual, which I think are three beautiful words. The Book of Salt is a deeply felt and richly imagined first novel. Monique, I believe, is in Germany, so Janet Silver, her editor, will accept the award. It's a great honor and pleasure to accept on behalf of Monique. Um, a book tour is the only thing that could have prevented her from being here tonight. She's touring for the Book of Salt in Germany. But she was eager to offer her thanks um, to the judges, to Peter and Anne and Allegra, um, and to the Bingham family for their meaningful and community-minded support. This is from Monique, I'm quoting her. A story is a gift, as Ben, the main character of the Book of Salt would say. To receive something in return for that gift, for that act of storytelling, is a blessing. On behalf of myself and for the communities that Will, Jonathan, and I will serve as part of our fellowship, my deepest thanks to the judges and especially to the Bingham family for their generosity and open heart. And the final recipient of the Robert Bingham Fellowship is Will Heinrich. His first novel, The Extraordinary, The King's Evil, is a hugely ambitious and flawlessly executed. It's a novel about nothing less than art and science, good and evil, and the perils of small town life. Will. There's a Yiddish expression, oder es helft nicht, oder man darf es nicht. Either it doesn't help or you don't need it. Uh, I've been saving up this expression to use it on occasion like this, but I thought I would be a lot older uh, <laughs> when I got to use it. In fact, um, this award couldn't be better timed for me or more helpful, and I'm very grateful for it. Thank you. This year's Gregory Kolovakos Award for Translation will be presented 
by uh, the chair of the Penn Translation Committee, Esther Allen. Hello. Um, before I prevent, present the Gregory Kolovakis Award, I just want to say a word or two about the Penn Translation Fund, uh, which was established uh, a year ago uh, in a, on, a, on a morning that I think those of us who were there will always remember and will always regard as a miracle, quite simply a miracle. Um, someone who, who none of us at Penn had ever met before showed up in our office sat at the table one morning and said uh, the situation of cultural insularity in this country, the fact that we are simply not reading the books written by the 80% of the world's population that does not write in English, does not speak English, is acute and crucial. And I'm giving Penn half a million dollars uh, because we have to do something about this. Um, the story gets even more interesting from there uh, because this individual who demands complete anonymity is not a wealthy person. Um, the money was received by this person's mother in 1943 when the father, who was a soldier in the American army, was killed. This was the father's death benefit. Um, and the family regarded that money as a sacred trust. I can't imagine it was all that much in 1943 when it was received. But they invested it. They never touched it. And in uh, 2003, when we received it, it wasn't the half million dollars that we'd been promised. It was $730,000, uh, the largest single donation that Penn has ever received. Um, and with that money, uh, the, the advisory board that was constituted uh, for the Penn Translation Fund grant process, uh, a wonderful group of people whose contribution I have to really thank uh, deeply, uh, Sarah Burstel, Barbara Epler, Lydia Davis, Michael Henry Heim, Will Schwalbe, Elliot Weinberger, and myself. Uh, a couple of them are actually here tonight. It was wonderful of them to have contributed so much of their time. Uh, we went through the 130 applications that we received, um, an astonishing array of material from all over the world, all different time periods, all different languages, uh, really just a wealth of material that was overwhelming to us. And we managed to narrow it down after much agonizing uh, to the 10 projects that you see listed in your program. Um, I'll let you consult the program as to those projects, but I do have to say that when we sent out the press release announcing these 10 winners, seven of which do not yet have publishers, uh, within a matter of hours, we started hearing from publishers and from editors. And to date, we've heard from more than a dozen editors with significant interest in these projects. So it's working. <laughs> uh, so a big hand for the Penn Translation Fund. Some actual good news. Um, and now, more good news. Uh, I'm presenting the, it's my honor to present the Gregory Kolovakis Award, which goes um, not only to a translator, but to anyone who has been uh, deeply involved in bringing the literatures of Latin America into English. Um, and is named in honor of Gregory Kolovakis, who for many years was head of the America's Society, or the, the Center for Inter-American Relations, as it was then known. Um, 
and uh, it's going to three recipients this year. Uh, the first of whom, Cola Franzen, is indeed a translator, and one so deeply beloved that when the American Literary Translators Association held their uh, annual conference in Boston last year, the city of Boston proclaimed a, a Cola Franzen day. <laughs> so, uh, Cola. I have to correct, it was Cambridge, but uh, the state senate uh, weighed in too on the project. It was a great surprise. Any recognition from this organization is uh, a tremendous uh, boost and uh, very important. Uh, I couldn't think of another place where I would rather be than right here. Um, Although this reward has been presented in my name, it belongs in equal measure to the writers who have uh, entrusted their work to me, and many of them have worked with me to uh, fashion the, their work into English, and to the editors and publishers who have made it known uh, to the public. Um, one of my writers is here, um, one of her books is here, Alicia, Alicia Borinsky. <laughs> in, in, in the um, write-up in the program, it mentions that some of what I translate are uh, somersaults and all that sort of thing. Well, that's in Alicia's books. I can't mention all the writers, but I in their name and in the names of the editors and so on, we thank you from our collective hearts. Thank you. The next recipient of the Kolovakis Award is Robert Lachlan, whose achievement um, beggars description because um, he didn't just translate from another language. First, he had to create a written language to translate from. Um, he has worked with the Tzotzil and Tzeltzal Maya and other uh, Highland Maya groups in the city of San Cristobal de las Casas in, in Chiapas, Mexico for many, many years and was the first person to actually create a written Maya language, uh, which he has then done uh, extraordinary things. And his his project in San Cristobal has become a model for people uh, working with oral languages around the world. So uh, he's, his, his achievement has been extraordinary. It's a real honor to present him with this award. Well, many thanks to the committee. Many thanks to my wife Mimi and to our children. And I'm so glad to become a pen pal. <laughs> I've dedicated my life uh, to giving a voice to the Tzotzio Maya of Chiapas, Mexico. This is my first US award since 1975 when my great Tzotzio Dictionary of San Lorenzo Sinacantan won a Golden Fleece Award for Spain's highest order, by the way. <laughs> With 30,000 entries, this was the most comprehensive dictionary of a Native American language, one of 30 still-spoken Mayan languages. But under awards in grant proposals, 
I had to put golden fleece, nothing else. I had submitted then three bilingual books to the Smithsonian, but was denied promotion because I didn't have a national reputation. The Golden Fleece and the National Enquirer changed all that. <laughs> Senator Proxmire recently justified the award because Tzotzil is an extinct language. Only half a million speakers today. The senator has never heard of the Zapatistas? A second edition of a handmade book, handmade by Tzotzil uh, Indian women, uh, Mayan Hearts, is a Mayan romance of 16th century Tzotzil heart metaphors. And it's waiting for you. And ready for publication is my translation of the dozen plays created by Tzotzil and Seltal actors of the Monkey Business Theater. And last but absolutely not least, the third uh, in the Kolovakis Awards goes to Alexander Taylor, the founder of Curbstone Press. If you read uh, any of the books that came out of the wars in Central America in the 1980s that were actually written by Central Americans, chances are they were published by Curbstone. There's a very good chance they were published by Curbstone. And we all owe Sandy Taylor a very great debt. Thank you, Esther. I'm really deeply touched and honored for this award from Penn, because Penn is so important in preserving and protecting freedom of expression and in protecting human rights uh, in general. I want to accept this award on the behalf of all those who have worked so long and hard for Curbstone. First and foremost, uh, the co-director, and incidentally, Ms. Campanero, uh, Campanera, pardon me, <laughs> uh, Judy Doyle, is she still, is he here? Judy here? You stand? I also want to thank uh, the Lannan Foundation for having the vision to support uh, translations in the, in the tradition of Penn here um, for publication by independent uh, presses. And of course, the NEA and the Connecticut Commission on the Arts for their long-standing support. Also, a heartfelt thanks to our board of directors, a real working board who have uh, guided us with wit, compassion, and solid commitment. Some of them are here tonight, I believe. George Gibson, Paul von Dresik, uh, Steve Welch. Uh, I see Paul there and Steve. Uh, you don't know how important your contribution, or I hope you do know how important your contribution has been to us. This is an amazing, Amazing board.
and last but not least, I want to thank the dozens and dozens of volunteers who have aided us in not only our publishing program, but our community outreach and educational programs in the schools. They with us believe the words of Roque Dalton, poetry like bread is for everyone. Thank you all so much. Ken Volker Award for Poetry, uh, a $5,000 prize, uh, is awarded to a writer at the height of her or his powers. Here to present the award uh, this year is Honor Moore. Carolyn Forche was meant to present this award, and she, along with Brad Lighthouser and Carl Phillips, were the judges this year. This is the sixth time this award has been given. The poets who have received the Penn Volcker Award are Jane Kenyon, France Wright, C.K. Williams, Heather McHugh, and Frederick Seidel. This year's awardee, this year's uh, maybe we could say Volker Laureate, uh, is uh, uh, Robert Pinsky, whom uh, we are honoring for his poetry. The titles alone of Robert Pinsky's first two books, Sadness and Happiness and An Explanation of America, announced a poet neither afraid of ambition nor in any doubt about poetry's ability to meet and surpass our ambitions for poetry. In Pinsky's case, at least part of the aim has been for poetry to take on contemporary culture and to place it in the context of nothing less than the history of human civilization. The poems have a heritage that can be traced back to Whitman and earlier still Virgil and Homer, poets for whom epic resonance is as attachable to national experience as it is to the interior, more intimate life of each individual. Pinsky recalls these traditions while remaining contemporary, having fashioned a uniquely American idiom, strangely, welcomely familiar, yet utterly his own. At once attentive to and restive with form, supple, versatile, and sturdy enough to sustain a wide range of modes from the hushed personal lyric to the more traditionally public ode, from the discursive narrative to the highly associative meditation. Robert Pinsky is one of our most original and essential poets, and indeed also among the most tireless in his generosity and commitment to the life of poetry itself. I'm very honored to present him with this award. I'm honored to be included uh, with this group of people. It's a special extra part of the prize for me that I come after hearing stories like the story about the uh, insurance money that the family got that became a large sum that was part of the translation, hearing about uh, 
creating a, a written version of the Mayan language. Everything I've written has been an attempt to be patriotic about my country, despite ways that I repeatedly made to feel ashamed and alienated by my country. Everything I've written has had to do with other people. Uh, on an occasion like this, you feel joy, uh, you feel gratitude. I'm grateful to be honored by fellow writers. I'm grateful to be honored by uh, an institution that, as others have said, defends um, freedom of expression, and freedom of expression as it overlaps with human rights. But also, I always find it necessary to think, when I see prizes awarded, therefore I must think it now, that one also, along with joy and gratitude, has to feel skepticism. Great writers have not received prizes and titles. Sometimes prizes and titles go to mediocrities. And uh, it's good to remember John Keats and Gerard Manley Hopkins on these occasions, if only to give yourself a little spur not to be too complacent about it. I reassure myself, and I'm grateful again, that for the list of people who've received this award, uh, and for the fact that uh, Carolyn Forche, Carl Phillips, and Brad Lighthouser don't represent any school or clique of poetry. It's an almost motley committee, and I'm grateful for the variety of the people who gave me the prize. They make me feel that I'm on my way to the ambition expressed by the poem I'm going to quote to you. I'll close by quoting this poem, and you'll be reassured to hear that it is a two-line poem. <laughs> it is a two-line poem written by the great 17th century English poet Ben Jonson. To the reader, and I feel like I've, I've taken a step towards being less lucky is what this poem describes. To the reader, reader, take care that takes my book in hand to read it well, that is, to understand. The final award of the evening is the $20,000 Penn Nabokov Prize. Uh, with us this evening to make the presentation is one of this year's judges, Edward Hirsch. It's the great delight of our committee, Margot Livesey, James McCourt, and myself, to award the Penn Nabokov Award to Mavis Gallant, who has always treated literature as a vocation as no more and nothing less than a matter of life and death. We believe that her great subjects, exile, immigration, loneliness, the intransigence of language and culture, the necessity and impossibility of translation seem more essential than ever. So too does her gift for inhabiting the lives of the feckless, the poor, the aloof, the lost, the abandoned, and the betrayed. Part Nabokov, part Balzac, Gallant writes in a style that is at once witty and cool, ruthlessly independent, disenchanted and yet enchanting, repertorial, visionary, and wise. She's one of the great prose writers of our time, and Penn honors Vladimir Nabokov 
and itself in honoring her. I'm sorry to report that Mavis Gallant is unable to attend our ceremony, but it's our great good fortune that the marvelous prose writer Russell Banks will accept the award on her behalf. I, I'm very privileged um, to be able to accept this on behalf of Mavis Gallant, who, as, as Ed has said, um, could not be here. She is a woman in her middle 80s and, and, and lives in Paris, and travel is difficult for her. In a characteristic mingling of modesty and fierce pride, she has said that one of the hardest things in the world is to describe what happened next. Now in her 80s, Mavis has spent a long lifetime doing that hardest thing, describing what happened next, and doing it in stories that are as moving and powerful and true to memory and mind as any written in English. Born and raised bilingual in French-speaking Quebec and residing for most of her adult life in France, English is Galant's chosen language, and in it fewer than a handful of living story writers are her equal. William Trevor and her countrywoman Alice Monroe, perhaps, and since the death of Eudora Welty, no American that I can think of. When she asked me to accept this award in her name, I wrote to her and asked her if she would like to write something for me to read on this occasion. Um, several months went by without her responding until I received this letter just a few days ago. And I'd like to take the liberty of reading it to you because I think it captures in a particularly vivid way her charm, and grace, intelligence, and modesty. Dear Russell, I've tried to send you a letter you could read on the 24th, but I had to tear up everything I started. My thanks read like cliches. When I said exactly how grateful I felt, I sounded 14. When I tried to write what it meant to me to hear my name linked with Nabokov's, I could imagine all those people I've never met thinking, she's overdoing it. <laughs> I wish all this could happen in some big brasserie in Paris with a committee around a big table with oysters and champagne. It would be as noisy as can be with waiters singing happy birthday in French not just out of towners from Brussels and saint eustache des Flots. It has been done even to me. And perhaps about two tables away, a triumphant soccer team, both singing and banging on the table, and here and there, very small children managing prawns, crayfish, and oysters without help. Perhaps we could do this on a Saturday with a weekend pickup band trying to pound out when the saints go marching in. One of the first things I had to learn in Paris was how to talk under noise. So under the happy birthdays and the soccer teams, on a gagné, just those three words chanted over and over, a bit of a dirge really, the only dirge I know of that conveys joy to the listener. And the bird-like voices of the children, not at all ready for bed. And of course, when the saints, under this, I'd be heard perfectly clearly saying, 
Merci, merci, merci. Our thanks to all the presenters, our congratulations to all the finalists and award recipients. Um, I'd like to remind all of you that a reception now begins. It won't be prawns and oysters, but I think it, it, you'll have a good time. No small children either. Um, uh, it's in the gallery and uh, uh, lasts until 9 p.m., so please join us. Thank you all very much.